Last week, we listened to Paul as he spoke about the need to be reconciled to God. And we said that that can be applied to the unbeliever who needs to come and be reconciled for the first time. And it can also be applied to the believer who needs to come back to the God who has saved him or her. And Paul made it clear that those who are reconciled then become ambassadors for Christ. They call others to come and be reconciled to God. To come and enter into the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross. When he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul said we are ambassadors of that message. And now in the passage we come to this morning, Paul is going to answer the question, if we have been reconciled to God, how will it be seen in our lives? How will that reconciliation play out in my life this afternoon and tomorrow? What will it look like to live a life that's consistent with our message? We're going to pick up this morning at chapter 6, verse 3. And we'll read through to chapter 7, verse 1. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1161. Chapter 6, verse 3. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, Bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. And opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness 
out of reverence for God. This is God's word. If we have been reconciled to God, how will it be seen in our lives? Paul gives us two very clear answers. Our reconciliation to God will be displayed in perseverance and separation. Paul introduces this in verses 3 to 4 of chapter 6. He says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. When Paul says, so that our ministry will not be discredited, he means so that our message will not be discredited. Someone has said the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. As Christians, we want people to accept our message. But if our lifestyle is inconsistent with our message, we're making it hard for people to accept the message. We're putting a stumbling block or an obstacle in their way. We're discrediting our message. So how do we avoid doing that? How do we live lives that command or support our message? We do it by perseverance and separation. First of all, we support our message by perseverance that displays God's grace and power. In this first section of the passage, Paul is using his own life as an example. He said in verse 4, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he focuses in on one way that he commands himself, in great endurance. That's really Paul's heading for everything that follows in verses 4 to 13. We could translate it perseverance. And then Paul follows that heading with what's been called a blizzard of troubles. These verses are like a snowstorm of difficulties. Paul starts by just rattling off a list of his personal experiences. In verse 4, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Sometimes people talk about Paul as if he spent his life locked away in a comfortable study. As if his letters were the work of a man who had big ideas but didn't really know anything about real life. That picture of Paul is not the reality. Yes, Paul wrote deep theology, and he wrote it while going through a blizzard of troubles. Everything Paul wrote had been tested in real life. The book of Acts fills in a lot of the details behind Paul's list here. These were not just random pieces of bad luck. They were things that came his way as he carried the message of Jesus. Most of them came his way because he carried the message of Jesus. And the point he's making is his endurance through all those things, the fact that he clung to God and didn't give up, the fact that he kept on sharing the message, 
That commands his message. It shows that his message has gripped him. He's willing to endure all this stuff because of his message. And that shows that Paul's message is livable. I had a teacher once who said one of the tests of truth, the tests of truth of something is, is it livable? Can you stick with it even in hard times? We live in a nation that's largely godless. When things are going well, people ignore God. They live as if material things and entertainment and promotions are all there is. But when things go wrong, most people realize that a godless approach to life is not livable. Sure, it seems to be working when all is well, but it's not satisfactory when things start falling apart. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago. Fabrice Muamba collapsed playing for Bolton in a football game. And suddenly it seemed like everyone was wearing t-shirts saying, pray for Muamba, unashamedly. Now, I don't know if many people knew who they were praying to, and I doubt that many of them are still praying, although now his recovery is being referred to in the papers as a miracle. But what all this illustrates is that ultimately, The idea of a godless universe is not livable. We might manage it some of the time, but sooner or later something's going to remind us that our lives are dependent on a being much bigger and more powerful than us. And hardcore atheists are no exception to that. They just take the language of worship and they transfer it from God onto nature. For example, listen to the way Richard Dawkins talks about the processes of nature. He uses the language of worship. Even for him, atheism is not ultimately livable. He has to worship something at the end of the day. Paul's life shows that his message is livable, even in the midst of a blizzard of troubles. And sometimes the greatest witness that you and I can give is to continue to pray and praise God, even in the midst of troubles, hardships, and distresses. We're called to persevere through troubles. But the kind of perseverance Paul is talking about includes displaying God's grace and power in the midst of troubles. So it's not just about persevering. It's about how we persevere. Look at verse 6. In purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. In the midst of Paul's blizzard of troubles, His life displays God's grace and power. When he says in the Holy Spirit, that may well be shorthand here for all the fruit of the Spirit. The weapons of righteousness probably means 
the full equipment and armor that God provides. So Paul isn't trying to give an exhaustive list here. He's giving us examples of what it looks like to display God's grace and power in our lives. So Paul isn't talking about the kind of perseverance that's very hard for the people around us to live with. When we go through troubles, it can be tempting for us to say, yes, I'm going to keep going, and I'm going to make sure everyone around me suffers too. I think it was Warren Wearsby who once announced to his church that he was going to be going on holiday. After the service, an elderly lady marched up to him and said, the devil never takes a holiday. And Wearsby writes, I was tempted to say, if he had you in his congregation, he might take a holiday. It seems that that lady was persevering, but in a way that made those around her miserable. There's nothing very God-glorifying in that kind of perseverance. Of course, if you and I are going to persevere in a way that displays God's grace and power, then we need, as Paul says, the Holy Spirit and the power of God. So as we pray for strength to persevere, we must also be praying for the ability to persevere graciously rather than miserably. As Paul's list continues, he moves on to the fact that life is full of contrasts. Verse 8. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. If you and I are going to persevere as Christians, we have to come to terms with the fact that human circumstances often seem to contradict divine realities. We're called to persevere in the midst of apparent contradictions. And this is really at the heart of the whole letter. Here we are, weak jars of clay who make up Christ's church. We're not only physically and spiritually weak, we're seen as pretty irrelevant by the world around us. And yet the divine reality is very different. The church is God's instrument of new creating reconciling, hell-defeating power in the world. What we're doing here this morning is never going to make the national news. But from God's perspective, this is where the action is. What we're doing here has eternal value. From God's perspective, this is more newsworthy than by-elections in Bradford or a strike by tanker drivers. If you and I are going to persevere, we have to live with the difference between human appearance and divine reality. That's what verses 8 to 10 are showing us. Yes, there may be some moments of glory and good report for us in this world. 
but there will also be times of dishonor and bad report. We will be misrepresented, genuine yet regarded as impostors. And when we are unknown by this world, we mustn't forget that we are known by God. Verse 10, the Bible assures us and Paul's own life assures us that it's possible to be oppressed by sorrows and poverty and yet be rejoicing and making others rich at the same time. We make them rich by blessing their lives, even though we might not have material wealth to give them. We can only do this as we learn to live with the contradiction between human circumstances and divine realities. From a material and physical point of view, we might possess nothing. And yet if we have Christ, then we possess everything. If we're going to persevere, we have to do what Paul urged us to do back in chapter 4. To fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul ends this first section of our passage by showing us that the kind of perseverance he's talking about includes perseverance with people. Verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. We know Paul had a rocky relationship with the Corinthian believers. We can't miss that when we read First and Second Corinthians. They were a pretty difficult, fickle bunch of people. I don't know how much hair Paul had, but he probably lost plenty of it over the Corinthians. And yet, he perseveres with them. Paul knows that being reconciled to God leads us to be reconciled to one another. It seems that at this point in time, the Corinthians were shutting Paul out to some degree. Whatever the details are, they seem to have closed him out of their affections. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said, live in harmony with one another. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And here, Paul is living out his own instruction. Some Christians would go through fire and water for the sake of Christ. They would walk into the arena and face the lions for Christ. They would endure prison and the torture chamber for Christ. But they can't, for the life of them, get along with other Christians. Maybe some of us need to be challenged about this today. Maybe you've read missionary biographies. Maybe you dream about doing great exploits for God. Great acts of faithfulness. But maybe what God is calling you to do is to persevere with that brother or sister you can't stand to be around. To reach out to them again. Maybe that's the act of faithfulness 
and perseverance God wants from you. It can be pretty easy for us to pray fervently for Christians in Egypt or Syria. Some of us find it a lot harder to get along with the Christians across the aisle from us. Perseverance that displays God's grace and power will include perseverance with people. Even people who might be just as much hard work as the Corinthians were. We can't be sure, as we've said, on the details of this rift between Paul and the Corinthians. But at least part of the issue was their involvement with the pagan world around them. That was causing them to be reserved toward Paul. And now in the second section of our passage, Paul gives a second characteristic of lives that command or support our message. That characteristic is separation that honors God's presence and commitment. Paul starts out by saying in verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I know at least one person here who used to think this verse was about eggs. So for those of you who aren't sure what a yoke is, it's the wooden thing around their necks. That's what a yoke is. But the word used here means more than just yoked. Another translation says, do not be unequally yoked. Literally, the word means to pull the yoke in a different direction from the person you're in the yoke with. If you picture two oxen doing that, and you get the picture, it doesn't work. Nobody is going to get anywhere. And both of them are going to end up getting hurt. The Old Testament law forbade farmers from yoking two different kinds of animals together. Specifically, it says not to yoke an ox with a donkey. It's easy to see why. It's just not going to work. There are different sizes. They will have different amounts of strength. They're going to pull at different speeds. It'll be a mess. So Paul is not just saying don't be yoked together with unbelievers. He's saying don't be yoked with unbelievers because it will be a disaster. That much is straightforward. But what exactly does Paul have in mind when he talks about being yoked? Obviously, he's not thinking of me and my neighbor strapping on one of these things. This is just an illustration. Well, before we try and decide what Paul means, we need to have in mind some other things Paul has said previously to the Corinthians. They would have had these things in their minds as they read this, so we need to have them in mind too. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, I have written to you in my letter, that was a letter before 1 Corinthians, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. And Paul went on to explain in that passage that they were not to associate with one who calls himself a brother 
but is persisting in unrepented sin. The point for you and I to notice is how this relates to what Paul says in our passage. Clearly, he does not mean we're to avoid all associations or relationships with unbelievers. We know Paul doesn't mean that because that would be contradicting the passage up on the screen. Whatever Paul is forbidding in our passage, he's assuming that we will still associate with unbelievers, including sexually immoral, greedy, swindling, idolatrous unbelievers. Another passage we need to have in mind is this one. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So when Paul says don't be yoked with unbelievers, he does not mean if you're married and then you become a Christian and your spouse does not, then you need to get out of that yoke you're in. No, he says, if they'll stay with you, you stay with them. Don't break your marriage commitment. One more passage we need to have in mind. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So again, Paul is not ruling out socializing fairly closely with unbelievers. So what does Paul mean in verse 14? I think he means avoid any relationship or partnership that compromises your Christian standards, witness, or faithfulness. In other words, when you and I think about our own situation, when we try to decide if some relationship or partnership would amount to being unequally yoked, then the questions to ask ourselves are, If I enter into this, or if I stay in this, will it involve disobeying God? Will it harm my witness for God? Will it ruin my exclusive commitment to God? Will I have to divide my allegiance between God and something or someone else? Will it compromise Christian standards, witness, or faithfulness? Notice what this does not say. It does not say the people you're associating with have to have Christian standards. It says, can you associate with them and still live by Christian standards yourself? That's important. Jesus spent a good deal of his time with immoral people. People who were looked down on as sinners. But Jesus was never immoral himself. In the context the Corinthians lived in, most of these issues would have been tied up with idol worship. Pagan temples were everywhere. They were at the heart of society. And they weren't just used for religious ceremonies. They were the centers of social life. If you were invited to a birthday party, it would probably be at the temple of some pagan god. And there was a full range of activities going on at the temple. At one end of the spectrum, there were apparently harmless things, like family celebrations. 
At the other end of the spectrum, there were things that were obviously wrong, like ceremonies that involved sex with temple prostitutes. And Paul's approach to all this, both here and in 1 Corinthians, is not to try and give a ruling on every possible scenario. Instead, he tells the believers not to get in a yoke with unbelievers. And then Paul trusts them to figure out whether their situation amounts to a yoke or not. So you and I have to do the same. As we live in our society that's full of false worship. Now some applications are obvious. A believer cannot marry an unbeliever. Marriage is the closest partnership there is. And the New Testament doesn't leave us to guess on this one. 1 Corinthians says that if a believer marries, the person they marry must also belong to the Lord. Now we've already seen that if you marry before you come to Christ, you're not to leave the marriage when you come to Christ. And I would argue that when a non-married live-in relationship has been long-term, and where there are children involved, we're not to walk away from that situation either. It's a marriage in all but name. But for the believer who is unmarried, whoever they marry must belong to the Lord. What about business partnerships? Well, every situation is going to be different. The questions to ask are, if I enter into this or if I stay in this, will it involve disobeying God? Will it harm my witness for God? Will it ruin my exclusive commitment to God? Will I have to sell my soul to this venture or this company? Will it demand all of me? Will it compromise Christian standards, witness, or faithfulness? You're not responsible for whether an employee or an employer or a business partner obeys God. You won't be held responsible for that. It's possible to have different standards from those you work with. But in some cases, being in partnership may hinder your obedience to God. That's the key question to consider. You can also apply this to the church. We could include ministry partnerships with other churches who are denying the gospel. If we were to be yoked with a church which denied that Jesus died as a substitute for us, or which denied the physical resurrection of Jesus, that would be a case of being yoked with people who are pulling in a totally different direction from us. Paul's aim here is not to give an answer to every specific dilemma we have. His aim is to show the absolute seriousness of being unequally yoked. He wants us to agree that that is not an option for us. We might struggle to decide if something adds up to an unequal yoke, but if we finally decide that it does, then it has to be out of the question for us. Look at verse 14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? For each of these questions, Paul is expecting the answer, none at all. This is the only place the name Belial occurs in the New Testament. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to evil and the forces of evil. And here, Paul is using it as another name for Satan, the devil. In these verses, Paul wants us to see that in the most fundamental sense, believers and unbelievers have nothing in common. Sure, we might have dozens of shared interests, but at the foundational level, where it matters, we have nothing in common. And this isn't a matter of being proud. It's not saying that we're too good to associate with certain people. All of us are unworthy sinners. This is a matter of glorifying the God who went through hell to save us from the hell we deserve. How can we act like that sacrifice doesn't matter? How can we act like it's just a small thing? How can we be yoked together with those who trample that sacrifice under their feet? Friends, yes. But to enter into some sort of intimate fellowship with an unbeliever is to enter into a traitorous partnership. Because, Paul says, God is present among his people and he is deeply committed to his people. Look at verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Here Paul is quoting from several Old Testament passages. And his purpose in doing that is to show us the wonder and the responsibility of being in relationship with the living God. God is not just interested in his people. He lives among his people. His Holy Spirit is in us. That's the reality for us. We are temples of the living God. And together we make up one great temple. And that reality is the basis for God's command to come out from them and be separate. If I'm a living temple of God, How can I enter into intimate fellowship with someone who rejects God? Now, Paul didn't hide away in a monastery. He was serious about the call to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. But Paul also agreed with James that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Paul agreed with James that pure and faultless religion involves keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. Our lives must show both love and concern and involvement in this world and also a separation that honors God's presence among us. 
Finally, Paul mentions God's commitment to us in verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. How can we be joined in fellowship to a world that mocks and denies our Father? Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Notice the order. This is not about God accepting us because we purify ourselves. We purify ourselves because he has accepted us and drawn us close. We purify ourselves because God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus. Now when you and I read a passage like this, it's very easy to pick out the bit that we like best. That's usually the bit we think we've already got sorted out. And then we can go home pleased with ourselves. But let's do it differently this morning. Those of you who are good at separating yourselves from unclean things, how good are you at persevering with other believers? Are you quick to separate yourself from them too? Do you tend to look down on less purified brothers and sisters? Maybe you need to hear the challenge to open wide your heart to some struggling brother or sister. Then, those of you who might be critical of other Christians who live in holy huddles, are you getting sucked into unholy huddles? Are there areas of your life where you're compromising and harming your witness? If you're being honest, are you sacrificing your faithfulness to Christ in order to get along in life? Someone once told me that his dad's motto was, you have to go along to get along. Have you fallen into that way of living? Going along with sinful things for the sake of your popularity or your career. And those of you who are in the middle of troubles, hardships, and distresses, are you persevering in a way that displays God's grace? Or are you persevering in a way that makes everyone around you miserable too? Let's pray. Father, we hear these things and we know that we need the power of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We want our lives to support and command the glorious message that we have. That is what we want. So we ask you to help us. Will you do heart surgery on us? Will you carry on your renewing work in us. Amen. We're going to close this part of our service by singing, Jesus, I my cross have taken.